Oh my, what should we do for banter? What movies have you seen recently? Uh, I finished off Shit's Creek on Netflix. Uh, yeah. Very, very emotional. Very emotional. Um, as emotional as All Quiet on the Western Front? You know, this was kind of more emotional Hallmark way, whereas All Quiet on the Western Front is more emotional and, oh my God, everything's on fire, oh God way. So slightly hmm. different vibes. All right. Well, let's uh, let's get into it. Hello, everyone. I'm Jason. I'm Laura. And welcome to Come Back a Star, a movie award stalemate. Stalemate. Uh, of horror. Of horror. Uh, the awards uh, will rain down on you like shells uh, falling from uh, allied bombers. We are watching every Best Picture winner and nominee from 1927 onwards. And this episode, as we have mentioned, is number 16, All Quiet on the Western Front. Which, if you're like me and you haven't and you don't you didn't really know what it was uh, like about, you still hear the title and you know, oh, this is going to be heavy. Um, Right. Because, you know, I went into this, you know, All Quiet on the Western Front was always one of those titles I'd heard. I knew it was about war and I knew it mm-hmm. was super sad, but I had always just assumed it was an American story about American soldiers. Nope. It's about Germany and German soldiers, but it is in fact a universal story, which I appreciate. Yeah, I think so. I think that was definitely uh, intentional. Uh, okay. So what we do in this podcast, just so you guys know, is that we're going to review the plot uh, pretty quickly here, although I think this one might take a little bit longer. A little than longer. Usual. There's a lot there. It's not so much plot driven as it is by like episodic, and yet it all kind yeah. of culminates into this big hole. Really, right, right. This is gonna be this is gonna be a good one. There's mm-hmm. a lot to unpack here for yep. sure. Uh, so after we review the plot and kind of give our our own opinions and insights. Uh, then we will rate the movie based off of acting, writing, cinematography, and overall how well those three work together. And then we'll offer the movie some bonus points on some different categories. And after that, we will consider this movie for our very own prestigious Notsker, a movie yeah. award podcast movie award. And yeah, that's our process. Let's get into it. Let's get into it. It's uh, so this is our year 1929 to 1930, correct? Yeah, this is uh, the year we're going through right now. And actually, this is the last episode of this Oscar season. And that is 1929 to 1930. All Quiet on the Western Front is 1930. I believe so. Yeah. Okay. Directed by Lewis Milestone, uh, based off a novel by Eric Marie Maria Remarque. And I've got some interesting tidbits on him when we're done here. Oh, cool. Cool. Yeah, I'm going to just start off by apologizing for my pronunciation of all the German names. In Absolutely. This. Yes. I, I will butcher them. Yep. So I, I, I apologize. Probably the Americans in the movie did, too. But so, you know, it's fair game. OK, so All Quiet on the Western Front opens up with uh, 
war having been declared in Germany and you see bunches of troops marching through town and everything like that. And that cuts to uh, Professor Kentorek. Uh, and he's telling this rousing speech to his students uh, to kind of get them into the action and into the uh, war frenzy, basically. And he paints this portrait of glory and triumph and most importantly, the glory of defending the fatherland. And he even tells the story of this other class uh, somewhere in Germany that heard the call and they all to a single student rose up and joined up. And uh, the boys in his class, uh, principally a character named uh, Paul Bomber, played by Lou Ares. Lou Ares. Lou Ares. Okay. They each each of these uh, kids in the class have these fantastical visions of themselves filling their fathers with pride and getting lauded by both their grateful countrymen and infatuated infatuated ladies. And uh, several of them decide to enlist right then and there. And it's just that it really sets the tone for the film and that there is just this creepy edge to it. And it might be retrospect because, you know, this was about World War One. And Hitler had not even yet come to power when this movie was released. But something about the angles of how uh, the professor is filmed, uh, you know, it's not really inspiring so much as terrifying. And I get vibes of like triumph of the will of shots of Hitler uh, speaking and rousing his uh, his party to to like action. And it's especially creepy because again, Hitler was not yet in power. Uh, Triumph of the will wouldn't come out until like five years later. So it's just, it's, it's just telling that people have always had a hard time learning from history. Yeah, that's, that's for darn sure. And uh, people may not have watched this movie if they were that gung ho about war, you know, a few years later. No, it was, um, it's a moving scene. I'm going to say like just like the very first start, you get uncomfortable knowing what happened Mm -hmm. from the very get go. And it's just so perfect that it's this old detached professor who Mm -hmm. has never seen a battlefield in his life. And and these young kids, these young kids who have no clue what the war is about. Nobody who actually fights the war knows what it's about. Right. And yet they're just thrown like fodder uh, by by these Professor Cantoreks. It's terrible. I don't like it. Yeah. Yeah. It's not great. Uh, So all these kids join up and while uh, their boot camp experience is a lot of drudgery, a lot of falling down into the mud on command, Mm -hmm. uh, they they keep up their humor, even though they gripe and groan about everything. And uh, they they kind of cap off their boot camp by trapping their uh, postmaster turned tyrannical sergeant Himmelstoss at the end of their training they trap him in a blanket while he's drunk and well beat him up they beat him up they humiliate him they uh they they whip him and stuff and then just oh yeah they like spank him his bottom they spank his bottom yeah he was we see him in the very beginning as uh this mailman kind of mild-mannered mailman but he's like no i'm a sergeant in the reserves i'm going out and so when they first see him they're like hey Ibelstas, what's up he's like no you have to respect me and basically lets the power go to his head and ruins their leave and stuff so they take out their rage on him all right yeah and he he ruins their leave they get a little bit of leave right before they have to march out and 
what he does as a last exercise before they march out is have them crawl through the mud. Yep. Which, of course, means they have to spend all of their leave time now washing their clothes. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, it's, a, it's a very, it is a dick move. I remember thinking at this point in the movie that boot camp wastes a lot of soap. Boy, you know, and everything <laughs> during wartime should be uh, uh, very well saved. So... Yeah, yeah because there was a lot of dropping into mud and then having to do laundry. Yeah, and it's uh, certainly probably not very exciting for young recruits who at this point are thirsty for action. Yeah, but I mean, I don't know how intentional this was, but it's a good mirror of mm-hmm. the whole weird futility that we'll see later in the battles. Uh They don't know why they're being told to drop into the mud. They don't know why they have to do that, clean their clothes, do that, clean their clothes again. And just this weird monotony. And it's not super clear why. Yeah, it's uh, once again, an example of they're ordered to do these things, but have no real understanding of the context as to why. So, of course, it seems like Himmelstoss is just ruining their good time for the heck of it because no one tells them, look, this is what you're going to have to go through. And it's because of X, Y, Z. So again, there is just kind of this theme throughout of just a total disrespect and disregard for the people actually fighting the war. Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, it's not good. It's, uh, and we also have to keep in mind as we go through this, if you, if we're talking and you're kind of remembering other movies, if you haven't seen this one, uh, it's clearly like the template for mm-hmm. a lot of the anti-war movies that will come afterwards yep. for a good long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think the the notes that it strikes are pretty resonant throughout time. <laughs> well put. That is true. <laughs> well, well, and we'll get more into that in in the rounds, but... Yeah, absolutely. It's very effective. Uh, Their training, however, doesn't change their optimistic outlook until they march up to the front and they start seeing action fairly quickly. Yeah, it's a big wake up call. Uh, They are confronted with a depleted Company 2, which is what they're a part of, Company 2. And they arrive and there's no food in sight. However, kind of the uh, is he a sergeant? I think so. I don't. We never really learned his his ranking. He's obviously kind of in charge of this troop, but it's almost kind of informal. It's strange. Yeah, I don't think that he's an officer. He's just kind of a grizzled veteran uh, named Kat Kaczynski, played by Lewis Walheim, who we've seen before in The Racket. And he sounds exactly like we want him to sound. He's great in this. Yeah. In that movie, he played a grizzled mobster. And in this one, he plays a grizzled soldier. Yep. And he does a fantastic job. He's great. He's great. Unfortunately, he died the following year. So we never really got to see his career blossom the way it should. Yeah, that's sad. Cat, an old hand at war, feeds the uh, the troop with stolen a stolen pig. That he you you see him. It's pretty funny. He just kind of stands by this tr- railway car where they're tossing out pig carcasses for, I'm guessing, to feed officers is kind of how I interpreted it or someone else. He just stands out there as if he was supposed to be there, grabs the pig and just walks off with it. Uh, pretty brilliant. Yeah. 
It's a good introduction to his character. Yeah. And he's the other more veteran soldiers that they meet when they when these kids first arrive say this about Cat. He just has this way of finding food wherever he is. He knows he's wily is mm-hmm. established really early on through this. He's wily and he's used to not just the fighting as you would expect, but also just the workings of the army. Right. All the unglamorous things the boys were never taught, never told about. Kaczynski is master of and lets and kind of is able to show them the ropes in that regard. Yeah. And you think he might be this kind of um mean, grizzled person, and he kind of has a rough side to him, certainly, but he takes these kids under his wing a mm-hmm. little bit. And that night they get their first real taste of bombardment. And as they are charged with uh, laying down wire, which is taking out like a giant spool of barbed wire and stretching it across the field. Uh, Dangerous stuff, especially with just, you know, shells going off everywhere. Yep. And that very first night they uh, they lose one of their friends. At least he gets blinded. Uh, His name is Bane. And. He was the one who most hesitant about coming to war in the first place. So the yeah. the most hesitant one gets gets removed first. First. And he yeah, he gets blinded and he's stumbling around in panic, and then another shell gets him and he's gone. And that is just like a real wake-up call to everybody, like, but that's Bane. And Kaczynski is like, and now he's dead. Let's go. And uh another, this is a very good example of a pre-code film because we also get a soldier who uh like when the first shell drops like grabs onto kaczynski and we first see this also the soft side to kaczynski he like looks him up and then goes oh don't feel bad you know that happened to me too i'll get you a new pair of underwear and you're like oh that guy just pooped himself and it's like okay okay i but again it was done with as much dignity as yeah. can be that situation. Like it's not played as a joke. It's like that that's natural. And they don't also hammer home like who pooped. It's yeah. You have yeah. to be paying attention. And he's not made that. to feel um a wimp by no. by any stretch. No. It's it's pretty quickly established that this movie is not going to glorify uh-uh. what's happening. No, not because, because it's not. It's like they're out there doing a chore. Even they're not fighting. They're just doing this chore for the war of laying down wire. That and might get one them of them killed. dies. Yeah, yeah. you know. <laughs> so the horror only intensifies for them in the coming years. We're taken into one of their dugouts where the men are trapped with rats. If this, the shells come down Oof. quickly, driving some of the men mad. Yeah, that. At first, it's like you see one rat and they've even nicknamed him Oscar and they're like, oh, whatever. But then at a certain point, as the shells keep coming down, you hear rats. And then just this whole bunch of rats like just hordes in, hordes in. And it's like, I'd go cuckoo bananas for sure. And then so they start just pounding them with the with the shovels. And you're just like, this is hell. This is absolute hell. Yeah. And, you know, there are just right in it. Uh, one of the people driven mad is young Kemmerich, played by William Bakewell, who races for the exit only to get hit by a shell. He's still alive, but is badly wounded and taken away. They endure a long, protracted battle, which, along with the constant shelling, includes bayonet fights with the incoming troops. And, you know, 
at least we think, but also what they do a good job of is this disorientation. Like you, you don't know which side is which really when like the attack starts with them personally. Right. They, the battle happens and it's shot very effectively. You see a lot of the legs moving. So you're not a hundred percent sure whose side you're even watching a lot of the time. And you watch it go back and forth at least like once. So it it does a good job of kind of conveying that sense of chaos. Yeah. And there's no like clear winner. This you see a lot of people die for it only to return to where they exactly were at the start of all of this. It's like what exactly was accomplished. And uh, it also includes just one of the most haunting shots I've ever seen in a movie. One I never expected to see in a 1930 movie of um, with the shelling. A guy at one point uh, grabs onto some barbed wire. A shell lands on him. And all we see are his severed hands holding on to the fence. Yeah, it's grim. It is grim. And uh, Lewis Milestone hired a lot of German veterans who had moved to L.A. to like work as extras and to also help inform on the movie. And that was taken directly from one of their anecdotes of something they saw on the battlefield. And it's just like. This is 1930. And it just makes me so mad at the Hays Code because I'm like, what did we miss? What could have been happened in the 30s that we could have seen? had they been allowed to continue expressing themselves like this? Because honestly, war probably wouldn't have been as glorified as it was if we could, right. they continued making movies like this. So yeah, the images in this movie really stick with you. Yeah. The, the, the sounds as well, I would say yes. this, the, the constant booming is something else that they portray as driving people mad. Yeah. Yeah. Not just the rats, not just the dugout, not just the severed limbs. It's just the constant shelling, the sounds, the booms. It's never stops. Mm -hmm. And of course the battle is very noisy Mm -hmm. and the, uh, the screams are effective. Oh God. Cause yeah, these aren't like battle cries. These are like high pitched dying screams and it's, Whew. And the fact that they they didn't have hadn't really discovered a way in 1930 yet to really incorporate soundtracks, and we've talked about this before. And like with the Big House, it really the lack of music during this really drives some of the realism of it. Yeah, I think it was it was. I don't think they would have necessarily added a soundtrack if no, they could, even if they could. But it was very effective that that they didn't. Yes, yes, for sure, for sure. And uh, so, yeah, the long protracted battle finally ends with neither side really advancing or anything. They're just back where they started. So the men recovering uh, decide to go see how Kemmerich is doing uh, in the medic tent. Mm -hmm. Uh, They go and it's not great. His leg is amputated and he is dying. And he's so young. Like the actor they have playing him looks just like a little like a kid. Yeah. He's supposed to be like 16 or something, and he looks it. He yeah. really looks it. And, and he gives a great performance. Because, yeah, I mean, he's not some, like, bravely stiff upper lip guy. He's like, oh, my God. Like, he's at first when they see him, he's like, my foot hurts. And they're like, uh, and he's like, oh, God, oh, God, I know what that means. My leg is gone. And he freaks out like any of us would. And it's just his friends are it's- all kids, too, and they don't know how to react. They don't know how to comfort him. Yeah, it's chilling. It's so chilling. 
And while the men have sympathy, uh, his friend Muller's chief concern is obtaining Kemmerich's fine leather boots. And while that may be a good excuse to like say, God, Muller, you're a, you're a jerk. It's like, this is war, you know? I mean, you do kind of have to think logically to survive. Like, you mm-hmm. aren't going to need these boots anymore. Mine are falling apart. Can I just take your boots? And he is shamed for it. And it's like, oh, I don't mean it. And he leaves. But you don't get the sense that he's a bad person for thinking about it. They're just none of them are in a situation where they can really think along the moral guides that, you know, they were raised with that they thought right. would be so cut and dry in the army when it gets so muddled. Right. They um, it's a. It's a moving scene. I mean, you see this poor kid and he's obviously suffering. And even before we know that he's dying as well. And the first thing that this other kid thinks of is, well, you know, I have blisters all over my feet because of my boots. Yeah. Can I have yours? And it's grimly pragmatic. It is. But at the same time, you can't you can't blame someone for thinking that way. No, no. I mean, and it's just what's hard about it is that earlier in the film, we'd seen Kemrick bragging about how these are the best boots in the army. And I think it's just for him, it's probably just especially gut wrenchy because it's like, I've lost my leg and now I'm going to lose these boots. Mm-hmm. And it seems like a little thing, but it's not. And everyone, you can understand their circumstances. Uh, Paul stays behind after the others leave and he's traumatized because he watches Kemmerich die and he, you know, he rushes around trying to find doctors, but the doctors are just as emotionally benumbed as everyone. And they're like, that guy, I've done all I can do for him. I've got all these other patients because he's, he's just one of hundreds in this, in this like big old tent. And uh, so Mueller, and he does not die easily. It is not some, like poetic cinematic death it's it's he's full of panic he doesn't want to die and so paul who's you know not much older than kemmerich is just he's in shock and he walks and you know we see him by his bed and then we see him walking off carrying kemmerich's boots and then he suddenly gets like this burst of life which he later explains is just kind of this gratitude of being alive that he runs all the way back to camp and he does give Mueller Kemrick's boots. Mueller will end up dying wearing them. Yeah, we see him walking around with those boots. We see him, you know, getting into battles with his boots until, you know, finally he dies in those boots as well. Yeah, and it's just like, well, what was the point, really? Like, these boots are meant for dying, I guess. Yeah, it's, uh, again, this... <laughs> You'll you'll pick up on this. This movie is grim. We should have maybe put like a little uh, default notice at the start of this episode. This is like the definitely the darkest movie we've done so far. And yeah, yeah and there's no shrinking away from it. There's no way to soften in the telling of it because it's just unrelenting horror. And I really I knew it was going to be real, real sad, but I just I did not know it was going to be as terrifying mm-hmm. in its in its depressing aspects as it is. But there are brief interludes of humor throughout where they try to forget themselves and their circumstances. There is a triumph over a stingy cook who prepared for 150 men and then only 80 survived the skirmish. And yet he refuses to give them extra rations. However, there is one good hearted general 
who kind of makes appearances throughout. And he uh, he comes in just as they're about to like rip this cook from limb to limb. And again, I get it. You get it. It's like, give them the extra rations. And he, the general is like, no, give them the extra rations and fix me up a plate while you're at it. And so they, they, they're feeling good about that. And they're eating their rations and they decide to take a skinny dip in a Creek where across the way, they see three French girls uh, who apparently all live in this barn together. I like to think of them as the triplets of Belleville or something. Yeah. Their, their backstory is kind of in question. I mean, they're there for the dudes in this movie, so they're not given really any character development. <laughs> and, you know, at first they kind of, you know, rebuff their advances in the water, but then they like say, hey, look at these loaves of bread. And the girls are like, OK, come over here. But they're uh, stopped from the transaction then and there by a guard. It's like, you guys can't cross the river. Get back to where you're going. So there are three girls and four men in the water. And they're like, okay, well, we'll sneak out at night and go see them. Uh, and there is uh, one guy throughout, uh, Tiaden, who's kind of, I guess, the closest we get to a straight kind of comic relief role. He's right. played by Slim Somerville, who was a pretty popular comic actor at that time. And um, he's kind of older than them and sort of the tall, gangly doofus. So uh, they talk Cat and just into distracting him by getting him drunk, which he gets mad about, but he's too drunk to do anything about it. And the men sneak off and enjoy a couple hours with the girls. And uh, Paul kind of waxes philosophic to the girl he's with that, like, I'll never forget you. And even though they can't speak the same language and all of that, and it's just kind of an interlude of let's just forget for a little while. And it comes right off the heels of a scene while they're eating that meal that they that they got out of the cook finally yeah. uh, where they just sit around and try to talk amongst each other about what does the war mean? Yes, that's right. Why, why are we even fighting and what does the Kaiser want us to be over here doing? It's like, it's like the French started the war. No, not the French. Who was it? Who started the war? And they just don't know. Mm-hmm. And I mean, world war one in particular was such a complicated war so many moving parts that it's just so depressing that the people fighting them didn't even know. Uh, Yeah. And I think that gets mirrored by his conversation. It's kind of, they get into this philosophical mood because they are on a, I guess kind of on leave. They're being pulled back from the front anyways. Right. They're just a, I think just to kind Mm -hmm. of recoup more than it to be on leave, but yeah. Right. And they have this very deep philosophical discussion of like, why are we even here? And that kind of gets extended past, you know, the drunken carousing that they have in the bar. And then this, you know, rendezvous that they have set up and it doesn't leave them. That conversation doesn't just disappear. It's going to be always just there. And it's going to up. And, you know, our kind of our focal character throughout is Paul. And I think that question really starts to like rankle with him and give him just a much darker outlook than what he started with. All right. So, um, yeah, so there are there are some lighthearted moments. Um, The cook getting bullied out of the food is pretty comical. Pretty satisfying. Um, The. The scene where Cat kind of dupes uh, 
how do you pronounce his name? Chaden, I'm guessing. Chayden, uh, into not going to the rendezvous. So there are like little patches of light in this otherwise very grim story. I mean, it's an illustration of how no matter how dark and terrible the circumstance, humans will try to adapt in whatever ways they can to like keep themselves. Yeah. When they pull back, this whole series of events is kind of like this grasp for normalcy almost, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and they're just so relieved that that, hey, like there is still life, I guess. I do right now have all my limbs. Mm-hmm. I uh, can walk and talk and think. I've not gone mad quite yet. Uh, there are these ladies. I don't even know if I find them beautiful or whatever, but they're willing and I just have to go for it. Right. Um, but that said, there are far more dark moments, obviously, than light. <laughs> right, yes. And uh during a particularly chaotic charge, Paul finds himself alone in a hole uh, created by one of the shell explosions. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's basically like craters on the moon. It, exactly. You know, I mean, that that's what trench warfare was, really. So he is after like a charge into this village and a counter charge. He is just kind of trapped in between in this uh, in this hole. And he is trapped there. Um, French soldiers are like leaping over this hole that he's in. Such a good shot, too. It really like it's just how trapped he is watching as all these guys leap over him. And he's just waiting for one of them to notice him in terror. Right. And yeah, it's really effective. You see his point of view and and these guys leaping over him. And one of the French soldiers uh, notices him and jumps into the hole to fight him. Paul ends up stabbing the soldier several times before stopping himself. And seeing the man struggle to stay alive, Paul realizes that the man that he is caught in this hole with is just like him. He's he is caught in this web of war and they're there together and they don't speak the same language. He Paul, that is, uh, tries to keep this French soldier alive. He gives him, well, some muddy water. Yeah. (laughs) Because that's what they have available when this French soldier motions and begs for water. Uh, You know, uh, Paul, you know, very eagerly tries to keep this man alive, but the man does die and dies in very unsettling way oh god yeah i mean every death scene in this is just so harrowing because it's not cinematic it's not some like romantic speech and then he fades away peacefully it's like paul really starts to lose it because he hears his groaning and uh his struggle for breath so just he's like stop it stop it and then he just dies and he's like sitting upright and he's just staring ahead and it's just the spookiest damn yeah. thing French soldier, French soldier is dead, staring just ahead of himself. And he looks, he looks, obviously he's dead, but he looks alive. He looks alive and like he's just been shocked and I would not want to be in a hole alone with him. Yeah. Paul is almost undone by this episode and keeps begging the dead man to forgive him until 
uh, after a while, Paul is able to return to camp and Kat talks him kind of like through the motions of not just having like killed a person, but having killed a person and then like just seeing this unfold. Yeah, I mean, it's easy in battle probably to like kill someone and move on and kill the next, but to be stuck there with the person mm-hmm. and to see that he is suffering and dying because of what you did. Yeah, and Kat kind of talks him through it and explains that this is this is just war after all which is settles Paul but at the same time as at as the audience you're also thinking well that doesn't that's not really a satisfactory ending to that conversation it's just kind of like again it's kind of a band-aid to keep going yep. to keep going to keep going and that's kind of cat is like the wisest character cuz he knows there is no rational logical reason to all of this. You just need to accept it and just go on to the next episode. And you just got to keep going until either you're killed or this ends. Okay. So is this, is he wounded in the same fight or is it, it's another fight. It's another fight. fight, I think. And it, it gets hard. Like, again, this is so episodic that you don't know what battle they're fighting when. And I doubt the, the soldiers, they never, they never cover where exactly they are. I don't think, which is, I think a good move on their part because it keeps mm-hmm. us disoriented and just it, it, it makes us even wonder even more like, well, why? Why are they doing this? Where are they? What is this for? And there is no answer. You're not tempted to assign some sort of reason no. to it because you don't even know where it is. Exactly. You know, it's between Germany and France yes. somewhere. Right. Right. Uh, so Paul and Albert, another character, are both wounded during a fight. And Paul, he's wounded on the side and they're both taken to a Catholic hospital where a longtime patient named Hamaker, played by Heine Conklin. Uh, he's uh, so Hamaker is implied to have gone a little nuts already. He speaks jauntily and is just kind of OK with being the weirdo in, yeah. in the hospital ward. You kind of feel like he's beyond all fear, all uh, all other emotions. But like, well, here we are. Yeah, pretty much. And given all the horror that has happened in the movie up to this point, I don't know. I could I could relate to Heimacher if I was like finally out of it because, you know, I got hit on the head. And so now I'm a little bit I have a screw loose. Yeah. It's like, well, better exploit the hell out of this. Like, yeah. just, you know. Better better than being dead and all the horrors that he sees go past him every single day because he's stuck in this hospital. Which probably also contributes to him going crazy. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Hamaker explains to them as one of these men is being moved uh, or transferred. Whoever has their clothes taken along with them as they're moved out of the room is moved to the death room. And he explains that the death room is basically... Right next to the morgue, they bring people there that they know are about to die. And he, being Hamaker, explains to Paul and Albert that I've seen plenty of men go into that room. I've never seen one come out. All said very jauntily. Yeah, as just, you know, very matter of factly. And hey, you know what? That's what happens. Yeah. Uh, So Paul starts hemorrhaging during the night and he is calling for the nurse, calling for the nurse, calling for the nurse. And it seems like it's been a while when the nurse finally shows up. 
she says like why ha- why hasn't anyone called and he's like oh, well well i was so you kind of get the idea that it's pretty it's the resources are stretched thin and maybe the sisters are just inured to everything everyone's in the same boat no one really knows the full picture of what they're doing here and they're all overworked too many people too many problems to tackle that everyone is basically kind of losing it but trying to keep it as together as they can right so they fix paul's uh bandaging and the next day he's placed on a stretcher and he watches in horror as uh the nun retrieves his clothes from their hook so he believes oh now i'm gonna get sent to the death room and he becomes hysterical and he's as he's taken away and he screams i'll be back i won't die yep over and over he screams that and and i really did think he was gonna die um yeah i wasn't sure you know, and I'm like, wow, that would be a real brave move because he was, again, kind of the closest thing we have to a protagonist at this point. But miraculously, he does survive and he rejoins poor Albert to find out that like Kemrick, Albert has lost his leg. I mean, I think that was just very common. Very, very common. Oh, absolutely. Uh, the ordeal results in Paul getting four days leave and he does head back home. And it's just a very stark contrast to get back you know, in the very beginning of the movie, we see this village and it's full of people celebrating like, woohoo, we're going to war and we're happy about that. And now it's just empty of everybody. Yeah. Um, he's greeted ecstatically by his sister and his ailing mother. But as he stands in his bedroom looking at his butterfly collection, he feels uneasy and he can't quite pinpoint why. But this feeling only increases when his father makes him meet his friends at a pub where the old gentlemen argue the best way the army should go forward. Uh, Paul says, look, it's a lot different when you're actually out on the front. They're they're like, you're too young to understand. You should understand that you should just go in and take Paris. Yeah, they they really seem to act like he's this little kid who needs to be helped with his homework. Mm -hmm. Uh, They do not respect his intelligence. Clear, they simply view him as a chess piece that needs to move relentlessly forward and forward. I mean, we don't really see much of his dad, but what we see is not impressive. No. He's a pompous jackass who is obviously very proud that his son is in uniform and doesn't care about what's under that uniform, which is his son. Right, right. That's a good way of putting it. Uh, The next day, Paul passes by Cantorek's class, where the impression impassioned professor is repeating almost word for word the speech that spurred Paul at his now mostly dead friends to enlist. And Paul can't help entering the class where a thrilled Cantoric urges him to speak to the young men who are just as bright eyed and eager and eager as he'd been once. And I. You confirm this or deny this. Um, I got the sense that the people in the classroom were younger. They looked younger. And I don't know. I think that probably was on purpose just to yeah. illustrate that, you know, to Paul's point of view. He has lived so many years in just like what the three years he's been away Mm -hmm. that he feels so much older than everyone in that class. So it could be just his perspective that these are babies. Maybe it's that. Um, My other thought was that maybe they're getting younger and younger. Oh, yeah. As as they run out of run out of meat. Yeah, they run out of men. So the the village is eerily quiet. There's no none of that bustle 
and that you see in the early in the movie and this group of kids that the professor is talking to really do look like a group of children. So we've moved from like maybe 16, 17, 18 to 14, 15, 16. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's disgusting. It's very disgusting, but they are just like bright eyed and eager for the fight. And so Paul tells them the truth. Uh, You still think it's beautiful to die for your country. The first bombardment taught us better. When it comes to dying for country, it's better not to die at all. Yeah, there, there, there's kind of the strong punch mm-hmm. for the movie. Yeah, um, that straight up says its thesis. Like, there's nothing glorious or affirming about this. It's for nothing. Yeah, and yeah, the the speech doesn't bring any catharsis for Paul. It's uh, these these little rat kids. <laughs> And they're and they're kids too. That's the other thing too. You can tell like how innocent and how much all these people in the village just don't know. Just don't know, and also they don't want to know that part of it. I mean, it's it's the same today. People just don't want to hear what they don't want to hear. Right, and these these kids in the class uh, call him a traitor, which. Again, so you have like an actual veteran of the war coming in and telling them how it is, but telling him how it is. But, you know, for for that, he's met with anger and calls of treason kind of mirroring. So you have the very young doing that to him and you have the very old also mm-hmm. treating him like he he wasn't there. So, y- you know, I'm the only one who was there and you just refuse to hear or to listen uh, so I think it's it's this that really pushes Paul to determine to to cut his leave short mm-hmm. and actually go back to the war, because when he gets to the war, there's actually people who understand what's going on and he can't stand just being, you know, talked down to and vilified when he goes on leave from a bunch of people who just he's completely alien to now. I mean, I mean, it's either, you know, go back to war or stay and go nuts and take everything out on his family. Cause I mean, it's obvious he has PTSD and a lot of soldiers, you know, feel like they just can't fit when they come back. And so he goes back to the war. And when he gets back to company two, he finds it almost completely empty of men that he knew with uh, boys as young as those that he just left in the classroom as replacements. And it's eerie. Again, I'm going to be saying that a lot. Yeah, It's eerie again, because you see these kids, like the ones that he was just talking to, they found some very young looking actors Mm -hmm. to, you know, some actual kids probably to play these soldiers. And it's just unsettling and already you could see it in their faces the look that was on like paul and his comrades faces after their first bombardment like oh this is what it is yeah they're already looking uh pretty pretty terrified and dejected and they're complaining about how there's no food yeah as well so it's still the same old problems it's it's recycling the same experience it's like the same experience but with constantly different people because other people just die at such an alarming rate. 
Jaden is still there. Uh, so the the tall kind of comic relief older man is still there. And uh, he tells Paul that Kat has survived as well. And Kat has apparently proclaimed that when he's hit, the war is going to be over. So he's going to so he's through it till the end is basically his philosophy. And Chaden tells Paul that Kat is out looking for food. And so Paul goes out to meet him. Uh, they they reunite kind of on the battlefield so much. I mean, further back from the front lines or anything like that. But Kat is doing his kind of scavenger abilities uh, to find food, which they're obviously lacking. They've been eating like sawdust. Oh, yeah, that's what he said. <laughs> it's t- he says, like, they don't even mix the sawdust with anything anymore. It's just sawdust. <laughs> uh, so they meet up, Paul and Kat, and Paul explains to Kat that all throughout leave, all he wanted to do was get away from these people and how the people back home just they don't understand. And in other words, he wanted to get back to people like Kat. Yeah. People who understood. And Kat welcomes him back and they start heading back to camp when uh, shells start landing by them. And uh, actually, I think it's uh, bombs from an airplane. It so is, you're, yeah. you're watching some it's some good shots, too, where you just see this airplane looking almost peaceful as it, you know, glides across the sky. sky yeah. yeah. Dropping down uh, mm. death. So. Uh, one of these bombs drops and Kat's uh, shin is broken. So Paul hoists him over his shoulders and they're almost just like walking casually. Well, yeah, because I mean, again, this is like a day like any other day on the front. Like, I mean, they know that that plane is flying around, could land, like kill them with this bomb. But it's like, that's the same as anywhere. What are we going to do about it? And so they're, yeah, they're very casual about it. And yeah, they're even joking with each other as Paul is carrying a cat. But then there's another shell that lands behind them. And when um, Paul gets cat to the medic, he's told flatly that he needn't have bothered because cat is dead. That lash bomb uh, killed him. And Paul is in denial at first because it's kind of like, no, cat was just kind of the constant yeah, he was a constant. He was going to see us. Th- he was dad. Mm-hmm. He, he was the father figure. And so he's very like, oh, no, no, no. He just fainted. He's fine. He's cat. Like it just it, there's always you always realize that there is a little bit of hope left once you lose that bit of hope. Right. And he tries giving cat water, which, of course, mirrors what he tried to do with the French soldier. And that's when he realizes the truth that that cat's gone. And what I think is clever of the movie is it doesn't have this big dramatic moment where Paul falls down and sobs and gives a speech about what a great man Cat is. It's like that's that's the end of the scene. Cat is dead. Yeah, he just feels empty. It just it's it's an emptiness, and the war goes on. Uh, and we don't know what the battle is. We don't know how much time has passed. All we know is Paul is in a trench. He is staring out across the expanse with his gun, but when just out of his reach. He spots a butterfly, like one in his collection, perched by a discarded helmet. We, we, what Paul doesn't see is close by is a French soldier who sees Paul, 
Uh, but Paul, entranced by the butterfly, can't help but reached out. Just as he's about to touch the butterfly, the soldier shoots him. We see Paul suddenly join his fallen brothers in a final silent march, fading out over a cemetery. And that's it. That's the end of the movie. Yep. That is the grim end of All Quiet on the Western Front. It's chaos. It's madness. It's dark. And it does not try to be anything else. I thought it was an incredible movie. It, it was It was fantastic. It, it was incredibly well done. I mean, it's really just one of the most impactful movies I've ever seen of any era. Yeah, I would say the same. Um, and Eric Maria Remark, who wrote the book, uh, basically wrote Paul as himself. His middle name was Paul, but he changed it to Maria in honor of his mother, whose name was Maria, who died during the war, much like Paul's mother was ailing throughout. Um, Yes, he was very, very anti-war after this process. And he just, he never really fully recovered. Um, And the Germans, of course, hated this movie. Nazis with storm screenings, proclaiming it unpatriotic. And uh, he, um, you know, he was on the Hollywood si- uh, scene for a while, but he eventually kind of retired to Switzerland. And something that's so brutal happened is during World War II, they captured his younger sister, um, proclaiming that, you know, she had been spreading anti-war propaganda. And she was told at a trial, like, we couldn't get your brother, but we'll get you. And they beheaded her. And oh he didn't goodness. find and he didn't find this out until after the war. So it's just like, I I mean, to know that they just didn't quite know yet that World War II was going to happen when they made this. It's just even more of a just devastating, devastating. Yeah. Um, I'm sure the rhetoric was starting. Oh, yeah. The very the the embryonic starts of the Nazi party were probably already. Mm hmm growing up around Germany. So to have those words put into the professor's mouth really kind of hammered home how dangerous. How dangerous that kind of blind nationalism is and how it just gets worse. It doesn't get better. Yeah. Um, Let's see. Other trivia is, you know, so on the German side, people hated it because they thought it was too anti-German. But then it was also banned in Poland for the opposite reason, they thought it was too easy on the Germans. And it's just like both sides just completely missed the point. This wasn't about Germany. This wasn't about the allies. This is about humans. Right. And it could have been either side. No side during World War One knew what it was really about. You can't summarize World War One easily. No, you can't. I mean, all war is nuts, but I feel like World War One in particular was just such a melee of no one understanding what it was for detached generals and politicians running things without letting the young boys they sent into battle know what it was about. And it just, it had just ended as it began in chaos, you know, and nothing was really resolved because we got another world war. Like, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I, uh, uh, you, you you understand why shell shock happened because we all felt a little shell shocked. I think after seeing this movie, and we just saw a movie. We just saw a movie, um, and I think it's because you go in with these expectations. Oh, it's a movie from 1930. How 
you know, how impactful is it really going to be? How realistic is it really going to be? Their special effects weren't what they are today. But this movie tells the lie of that in a big way. I mean, the special effects, I think, were incredible for their time. And mm-hmm. again, it wasn't trying to be like some big cinematic uh, demonstration. It was just straightforward almost. Yeah. And why I have something to bring up when we get to technical, I guess. Okay. Um, did you want to get into rating? Yeah, you, we might as well, right? I mean, because okay. we can kind of discuss more things we think about it as we do the rating. Okay, so our first category is acting. Yeah, acting, I go back and forth on because on the one hand, we do have uh, Walheim giving a fantastic performance. performance. Slim Somerville is great. I go back and forth on Lou Ayers as Mm. Paul. Um, He himself uh, said that he was never the best actor, but that he seemed to resonate with audiences. And I get that because there is something so almost gormless kind of about him that he's Mm -hmm. believable, even if he's given not the best lines. He's kind of given the line sort of heavy handed uh, lines of like, uh, why are we fighting this? This is how I feel. Whereas, which feels a little more artificial than other Mm. parts, but he's, he gets at something and, and Lou Ayers, poor guy, he, uh, (laughs) this movie really moved him and really affected him. So, so much so that he was not popular during World War II because he became a conscientious objector. Uh, He did end up serving as uh, a medic, though, I think, in the South Pacific. But by then, his reputation was kind of ruined because he was lumped in with the other kind of appeasement uh, supporters. Oh, okay. I mean, it, it was probably so hard for a lot of World War I vets who who just couldn't understand that Hitler was a different story from the Kaiser. He was someone that had to be defeated. Uh, they they just figured, oh, it's another big skirmish. It's going to take countless lives. It was, but it had to be fought. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas this, none of this had to happen. None of this. And, uh, but so yeah, so for acting, I guess I would give it a seven. A seven? Um, I'm going to go ahead and give it an eight, uh, just a little bit higher. I, I exactly, I take a lot of your points that sometimes there were lines that felt like they had to be put in there, obviously, but didn't necessarily feel like they were natural for a person to say. Again, I don't think screenwriters had quite learned completely to trust their audience yet there was a lot of having to hammer points home mm-hmm. um that kind of leads us into our next category though uh of writing and those actual lines that were delivered with um varying success yeah i um i do think that the individual camaraderie between the the boys we first see in the professor's class could have been more established yeah. But at the same time, this is going to be sound like a very wackadoo comparison, but stay with me here. It's almost a little of what makes uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre such a really scary, <laughs> disturbing movie is that there's no real character development. But at the same time, it kind of drives down the horror that this could happen to anybody at any time. It doesn't really matter who these people are as individuals. They are people. Yeah, you have a really difficult time 
kind of differentiating these characters at the start. Yeah. Because because they don't spend much time on like who they are and establishing how they're different from each other, which is kind of the point. Yeah. So it, it's one of those things that really kind of depends on your point of view. If you were really upset that they didn't establish the relationships, you'd want to grade the writing a little lower. But if you think that actually kind of works to authenticate the mm-hmm. idea of these happy tenure, you'd think it was really good. I think I'm going to give it another seven because I do think some of the lines were a little too forced. Um, But I think what saves this movie is the artistic merits, which we're about to get into. Right. I'm actually, hmm. I think for writing, I'm going to have to go higher than you and give it a nine. Actually. Okay. Um, I thought the storytelling was just really effective. Mm -hmm. And even like the, Lines that felt artificial and felt just kind of placed in there like an inner title from a silent movie. Yeah. I felt like those just kind of had to be there in a sense. Uh, but I I absolutely respect your seven. Okay. Okay. We will not go to war over this. No, we'll go we will to not. war over some very confusingly worded treaty instead. Yes, there you go. There we go. So our third category is cinematography. Well, this I will be very, very cry to. I'll give it a 10. I will also give it a 10. That was that was a very easy. <laughs> and I knew right away the cinematography would be something special with, um, you know, they're, you know, that's scanning over the village. All the villagers are really happy because, yay, war, glory for the fatherland. And then it like go it like kind of tracks into the professor's classroom and then just really kind of expands. Yeah. Until it again, I'm reminded so much of like shots of triumph of the will I've seen and of just the close ups of of his speaking as if he's speaking to a bunch of like uh, congregants or something. And then, yeah, just the battle shots of Paul looking at the French soldiers leaping over him. It's just very, very powerful. I guess Lewis Milestone had kind of invented uh tracking shots and like wooden tracks to make the, the shots look smoother. And you, oh, that's right. And you and you really get that. You, nothing feels very clunky when it comes to the cinematography, which is incredible for one of the first big sound movies. Yeah, you can tell the effort was put in mm-hmm. and you could tell also that it was necessary. So some a lot of those running shots as they're moving across the field. I am assuming that's part of what the wooden track mm-hmm. was, was you the, feel like you're there. You feel like you're there because you're moving alongside with the soldiers as they run. Yeah. And yeah, it was it was beautifully shot and just very purposeful. And it was just orchestrated really well. Whoever worked on that really had an eye and brought it together with the story. And speaking of bringing things together, our fourth category overall. I'm going to give it an eight. An eight? Yeah. Oh, gosh, or do I want to? Yeah, I guess, but I want to give it higher. Oh, should I should have given it a nine. What are you going to give it? I'll, I'll, I'm giving it a nine. I'll give it a nine, too, then. I'll just I'll cheat. I'll cheat, steal your score. And I I was debating between nine and ten uh, because I do feel like. All these different elements work together so well. yeah. The just, acting, the writing, the cinematography just come together for a nearly perfect product. There's, yeah. you know, we're nitpicking at we this point. We are. We really are. Because, you know, I mean, it's important to 
well, we'll stay as objective as we can, but it's hard when it's about something that's so emotional. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Okay. So I'm tallying things up as we go along. It has 59 points going into the bonus rounds. The bonus rounds? Bonus rounds. I think I'm going to leave the sound effect off for this one. It's just, it's too sad. It is too sad, actually. It would be a little... Um, Seems tasteless. Uh, so, costumes and set. You know, I think, you know, Milestone went out of his way to uh, actually bring in German veterans to authenticate the costume. So I'm going to have to give him a five. He really did his research. It was all very realistic. Um, <laughs> you know, the French farm girls were probably made up a little more than they probably would have been in reality. But. You know, still that's, the costumes. That's the movies. That's the movies. I mean, we could show gritty warfare, but God forbid the actresses have makeup free faces. <laughs> and that's you know, true. Yeah, the sets were, of course, fantastic. I I I still don't know how they did some of the battle scenes because it looked like they were mm-hmm. actual battle scenes. It's I mean, these yeah. days it would just all be CGI. I don't know what they did back then. Yeah, the craters, just the fields just being completely pockmarked, mm-hmm. like we mentioned. Um, there are like a few interior shots, but I mean, those those sets didn't jump out at me as being stagey or mm-hmm. anything like that. They felt lived in. It did feel very lived in. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to give it five points for costumes and set as well. Perfect. Now on to boldness for bonus points. Give it another five. Five. Yeah. five. I mean, <laughs> it just, I mean, the, the again, the severed hands uh, was just an example of just how there was just no shirking the horror. I mean, I think this was the first movie to fully capture just how absolutely horrifying war was. I mean, you get it a bit in Wings, mm-hmm. but that was still a very patriotic movie. That was about our boys. So it was still had a lot of like kind of triumphant moments. This was the first one that was just like, nope, unrelenting. Every, everything is just bad. Everything is bad. This was for nothing. Oh, God. And that was a very bold stance, I think, to take of any era. Oh, yeah, I think so. I mean, it's. It's very emphatic mm-hmm. about its um, its anti-war message and anti-nationalism message. And yeah, they didn't pull any punches on this one. Not at all. And I think they took risks and I think it really paid off. It did. I mean, gosh, just knowing how just the boys were really perfectly cast because they were looked so young. I mean, Hollywood has always had a problem, right, with like hiring Mm -hmm. actors who look too old to be teenagers. Not in this movie. Lou Ayers, maybe because they needed like kind of a leading man type in the role of Paul. But for the rest, they were they look like kids. Yeah, they definitely did. It was bold. Yeah. And they and they acted well, too. They did. I mean, again, they just and it was just not like performances completely free of vanity because when they shrieked, they shrieked like people who were actually terrified. There was no yeah. there was no like attempt to be the macho man. No. And no. And I, I salute that. I think that's far braver than trying to be the macho man. 
Yeah, the closest you get might be cat, but even that is just kind of like, well, I'm just here because I survive. Yeah, I survive. I'm not trying to be honorable. I'm not trying to be a great man. I'm just trying to get done what needs to be done. Yeah, he's heroically uh, taking pigs I to mean, feed the company. Like, that's that's but, his heroic moment. I, and, you know, you look at Walheim. He does not have the face of a matinee idol. He, no. He's... You know, he kind of grunts and whatever. He's what I think all the men were taught to, like, not be like. And mm. he's the one who has, who is the most heroic in his in his own way. And so, again, very bold. Very bold moves. All right. So let's go on to the legacy category. It's Five Yeah, this is sweeping up them bonus points. Yeah, I, I mean, the first... I mean, I don't know. I don't. I'm sure there were silent movies we haven't even heard of who were that were anti-war, especially because it was right after the war and sure, all that. Sure. But I think this is obviously the first one to make this kind of global impact. I mean, and I think you know it speaks to it that it was protested so heavily in so many different countries. That means it struck a chord, right? Right, and it really does become a template. Mm-hmm. For anti-war movies. Exactly. Focused, focused on a particular war. And I do wish more war movies in general would have followed in its footsteps instead mm-hmm. of glorifying people. You know, we don't learn from history, guys. No, no, sadly we don't. But I mean, I think. I think this there's no way this movie didn't have an impact, not mm-hmm. just on the. Not just on the film industry, which is what we usually talk about when we're talking about legacy. Right. But we're talking about society as a as a whole. Exactly. I think. Yeah. I think it probably really woke some people up. It woke up Lou Ayers, who was hired to be an actor in this, and I think got so incredibly close to the material that it ended up, you know, screwing up his life a bit, but I don't think he had any regrets. Yeah. Longevity. How well does this movie stand up over time? <sighs> Am I going to give it another five, Jason? Like, I mean, I am. What What I love about it is, you know, when I first saw it, it was going to be like two hours, over two hours long. I was thinking, oh, God, so was Hollywood Review. What are we in for? But it didn't feel that long, you know, because the pacing was incredible in this. Mm-hmm. I think it's the best paced movie we've seen so far, at least. Cinematography worked well with that, too. Right. Just moving us along. And so I think, you know, modern audiences, I think, would be just as gripped as they were back then. So I'm, yeah, I'm going to give it another five for longevity. I am as well. And we're down to our final category, which is technical. And here I wanted to talk a little bit about the sound, which I think we agreed was probably the best Mm -hmm. of any of these movies in the talkie era that we've seen so far. I mean, big house is not too far behind, but I still say this probably gets it over big house just a little. Yeah, I would I would say so. And one of the things that I wanted to bring up when we were discussing this earlier was uh, what's interesting is that this movie obviously had sound effects. Mm-hmm. So there's the bombs and the guns and everything like that. But I feel like they did, they hadn't established yet what those things sound like in movies. We have a very distinct idea of what a gunshot sounds like in a movie yeah and these were very varied Mm -hmm. which i think probably mimics more closely what these men actually lived through 
like not like well what was that was that a gun was that a bomb was that what is that and then suddenly you're taken out and you don't even know what killed you right it it wasn't it wasn't just a consistent boom 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 it was you know 20 different kinds of booms 20 different kinds of sounds of bullets being shot and whizzing by and it um and and they thought to have a sound effect for bullets whizzing by which mm-hmm was so well thought out every little detail in this movie is so well thought out it uh it really added a lot and uh, along with the technical aspect we have to include the tracking Mm -hmm. devices that they that they used i would say um the effects of you know um the bombs going off all of those kind of techniques and things like that. I don't know. I'm I'm giving it a five for Same. me. Same here. Yeah. And I, there's nothing I can really add to what you said. I it just t- takes us into war in a way that I just maybe Paths of Glory. I don't know if you've seen the Kubrick film from the '60s. It's also about mm-hmm. World War One. It it's about on the same level of just putting you right there. And I think the technical aspects are what help help that entirely. You know what? I gave you the wrong amount huh? for how far it was going before the bonus rounds. Um, because we have a total of 119. <gasps> oh my god. At the end of this. All quiet on the Western Front. You are not quiet on the scoreboard. No, not at all. Let me check what was our highest would be set. It beat out seventh heaven. Well, you know, I mean, I have to say this is probably an even more realistic depiction of war than Seventh Heaven was, since the guy who was blinded in this does not get to reunite with his sweetheart. He freaking dies. Yep. Oh, yeah, it's it's good in a very different way. Just be prepared if you're going to watch this movie. You know, I mean, I really hate to keep comparing it to something like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which I think is probably the best horror film ever made. But like, this is like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre of war movies. Like, it feels real. It feels real. You go into it with, you know, your preconceived notions about what a 1930 movie is going to be. And it is blown up like a bomb blowing your limbs off. It's... It's rough, and I would definitely encourage everyone to watch it, mm-hmm. but be be in a good place. Yes, for that, just realize that it's gonna it's gonna take your guts and twist them. Yep. Not much more to say about that. Let's see. Hey, Jason, are you yeah. are you gonna nominate it for an Oscar? Gosh, Laura, let me think about I that. I don't know. Uh, Yes, of course. I'm going to nominate this movie for the Notsker Award, a movie podcast award for movies award. You know what? I think I've got to do the same. Excellent. <laughs> All right. So I'm going to be marking that down as a Notsker. And that finishes up our 1929-1930 Oscar season. And I was looking back over it, and we have given the Notsker nod to all of the same movies except for Love Parade. Yeah, poor Love Parade. I uh, And again, I think it's important to, like, you know, I think 
a light, frothy musical can be just as good as an anti-war movie. Um, but in this case, it wasn't. <laughs> it just... Yeah, it, it feels so weird. To I still don't look. understand why it was nominated. I mean, it wasn't a bad movie, but it wasn't especially great. Looking back from this movie, compared to pretty much all of them. It's like a different dimension. Yeah, but I mean, especially Love Parade, because Love Parade was so goofy. It was. It was a goofy movie, which is fine. But yeah. it's so out of place next it to all the other so movies. It feels so jarring. I mean, you've got... I mean, the rest aren't comedies, for one thing. Like, you know, The Divorcee is, you know, after Love Parade, the most technically lighthearted. And that was still a very heavy melodrama mm-hmm. about a marriage between very wealthy people. So, I mean, even that seems like lighthearted fare after Big House and All Quiet on the Western Front. But, um, yeah, just not on the same level. <laughs> no, no. And, of course, uh, All Quiet is historical, similarly like Disraeli. Oh, yeah. Oh, I forgot about old Disraeli. But Disraeli is also kind of not, not. yeah, it's a fairly comic. Yeah, I mean, it has comic aspects. It's really kind of just more... It's still more lighthearted, I think, in its mm-hmm. presentation. Um, and definitely kind of really seems more stagey. Right. In comparison to this. I feel like Disraeli was our stagiest, although I still think it yeah. was leagues better than Love Parade. So <laughs> <laughs> poor Love Parade. Poor Love Parade. I mean, it was fine. It was fine. But I think even of the musicals of the 30s, it doesn't rank. <laughs> I can't remember a single tune, Jason. Not a single tune. <laughs> Neither can I. Yeah, and it was constantly being sung. Like, it was not one of those things where it just had one or two songs, like uh, Broadway Melody did. It right. was constantly sung, and I can't remember a single two. So, yeah. Sorry, Love well, Parade, you don't make it. <laughs> we'll definitely get into it in our next episode when we do a roundup. We do a roundup. Oh, it's of our 1929, roundup 1930. We get to see who wins. It's, um... It's nice, though, to have some options where last year I felt like we didn't really have that, no, that no, no, nice of a slate of choices. So it's going to be it's going to be interesting. Yeah. For me, the top contenders right now are all quiet on the Western Front and Big House. I think the last two we just saw, I think, are kind of the top contenders. But we shall see. Maybe I will look yeah. more kindly on like Divorcee and Disraeli as yeah. we get into it. Okay, that's it for us today. Thanks, everyone, for listening in. Thank if God. you would like to learn more about World War One, there is uh, Dan Carlin's Hardcore History podcast. It's incredible. I've only listened to a little of it, but it's incredible. Yeah, it's, it's really good coverage of this time. Uh, us talking about the movie doesn't begin to cover the complexities. Well, we didn't even try to describe the war. I mean, and I think I tip my hat to Carlin for tackling the senselessness of it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, with Disraeli, we talked a little bit about the historical background of it, but with this one, it's, it's impossible. Just, just go listen to that podcast series. Yeah. Just for the context to know just how complex it was and how there was no way that these young men could have known what they were getting themselves into. All right. And uh, we also want to give a shout out to, um, let's see, Pontifax for sure, for for them always being so nice and continuing to support us and give us advice and things like that. Uh, Shout out to Totalis Rankium. Oh, yeah. I've just finished their Calvin Coolidge series. 
Cool and uh, apparently that involves some Hollywood drama. Uh, Calvin Coolidge was on set for a bear attack. What? Holy cow, we have to listen they, to this. They were watching, I forget the name of the movie, but it was, uh, it did feature a live bear and the bear kind of went on a rampage while Calvin Coolidge was there. So you have the comic image of Secret Service men bustling the uh, <laughs> the president's around while this bear goes on a rampage and apparently Coolidge found it hilarious. Oh my God. Well, he was cool Cal. What can you say? He wasn't going to lose it. <laughs> Exit hurriedly pursued by a bear. I hope at least someone said that at some point. Gosh. Yeah. Go check out their podcast as well. We're, we're starting to overlap in, in time frame for these yeah, movies and point. the presidents. <laughs> That's funny. I like that. I think Coolidge was the first uh, president elected, and you can correct me on this. Uh, that that ladies helped elect because was that the, wasn't that the first? Uh, president he might have been that uh, after the amendment was passed. But uh, he was also terrible to his wife. So oh, the ironies. He was probably because you know everyone blames Hoover for the depression, but he was the president right before, right? Right, right. He's he's at least partly to blame. So uh, good job, ladies. We elected a guy who started the depression. See, this is why we shouldn't have gotten the vote. We should just, you know, stick to the kitchen. That's Which is how he felt, actually. So that's. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, boy. Yeah. I looked up the movie in which there was the bear. And unfortunately, we can't review it because it no longer oh, exists. No, we'll find it. But it sounds ridiculous. I mean, if it involved a situation where the bear attacks the president, it sounds pretty ridiculous. So. I mean, unfortunately, Calvin Coolidge wasn't in the movie. That would have been that truly would have been interesting. That would have been. Do you know it's rumored JFK is in a, a Casino Royale? Not Casino oh, Royale. Really? Not Casino Royale. Uh, Ocean's Eleven. Uh, you see the back of his head, apparently, in a casino. But I don't know if that's true. So, mm. Well, anyhow, that's just little gems for you guys to be parted with because things got dark this episode. Yeah. Yeah. Try and cheer things up a little bit as we sign off. Uh Okay, everyone. Stay groovy. And uh, if you're going to enlist into a war, make sure you know what it's about. Don't go into it guns blazing, thinking it's going to be glorious. It's not. Yeah. And um, stay safe out there, everyone. Yeah. And uh, goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.